We are almost literally and figuratively at the heart of our retreat. It's hard to imagine that we've been here less than 24 hours because the time is used well, structured well, so that we have uh, opportunities to pray together, to pray on our own, uh, to reflect on what we've heard and those things that simply are in our mind and heart that we bring to this retreat. And following this conference, we have the opportunity to spend an extended period of time in Eucharistic adoration. And we wanted that moment, I think, to bring all of our intentions, all of our prayers, all our desires before the Lord, to place them symbolically upon the altar. Imagine that we are on Mount Tabor with Christ and that moment of transfiguration, which is, of course, the gospel for tomorrow, the second Sunday of Lent. And, and to not be afraid of saying crazy things, as St. Peter did. Um, and among those crazy things we may want to bring before the Lord our desires to imitate, again, the virtues of the Holy Family. We spoke, we, we pondered a bit in our last conference on simplicity and humility. Well, let's give a little thought to the virtue of cheerfulness. And I wonder if we ever have thought of that as a virtue. It's certainly not one of the great virtues. It's not a theological virtue. It can't compare with charity, although it is a manifestation of charity. But I think it's fair to call cheerfulness a virtue. It's a human virtue. And it should be something, and when we reflect on it, it should be a kind of a natural consequence of the Christian life. Because the Lord wants us to be joyful, to be joyful at all times. And you know, we have to be careful here in, in kind of pondering this, because, you know, it, to be cheerful from a supernatural perspective doesn't mean that we're always ebullient, you know, or that we're always perky. We may never be perky in our whole life, depending on our personality. You know, we may just be kind of a very low-key person. It's not that we have to change our whole personality. Now, there are some people who are kind of naturally, it's a buoyant, you know, and naturally kind of, um, energetic and positive and, and uh, kind of inspiring and animating, uh, sometimes to the point of exhaustion of everybody else around them, you know. Uh, other times, most people, I think, are just, you know, kind of a normal, calm demeanor. And there's others, of course, who can't seem to be happy no matter what happens. Um, and, but we want to strive to embody and to live the spirit of cheerfulness which flows from Christian joy. And what is the biggest obstacle to that? Well, some might say it's the, the, the real condition of things that's the obstacle to being cheerful. Because we live in a fallen world. And there's sin all around us. Now, we don't have to look very far to find it because we just need to look in the mirror and make a good examination of conscience. We find plenty of detritus, you know, in our own mind and our own heart. Or people who are news junkies. And I think we should be well informed about the things that are going on in our society, in our nation, in the church, in the culture. Uh, at the same time, it's always, you know, the bad news that attracts attention. 
I mean, we know that, and yet it's still, there's still that attraction. Uh, we can't help but to, when we drive down the freeways, here or anywhere, uh, when there's a wreck, everybody slows down for it. It went on the other side of the freeway, right? Of course, if it's on our side, obviously we slow down. But even if it's on the other side of the freeway, everybody slows down and they look. And as you're coming along, I imagine some of you are thinking to yourself, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to slow down because there's nothing I can do, so I'm not going to look over there. And then you get there and you look, <laughs> right? And you're just inching along and then you speed up and everything's back to normal. You know, disasters attract our attention. And, and that's true in a general way, too. But, and if we let those things control us and guide us, it's very easy to lose our peace and very easy to lose our serenity. It's really quite impressive if we go back and read some of the accounts of the early saints and martyrs in the first few centuries of Christianity. Now, of course, we have to remember that in the 20th century, there were more Christian martyrs than all the rest of Christian history combined. Believe it or not, in the 20th century, there were more martyrs than the previous 19th centuries combined. That's how many martyrs there were. When you think about the great persecutions of the church in Spain and in Mexico and in the communist world, in Russia, in China, in Vietnam, and um, the persecutions that are ongoing even now in many parts of the Middle East, North Korea. So there are more Christians in our life, more Christian martyrs in our lifetimes than in the previous 19 centuries. But when we read some of the accounts of those early martyrs and we see how beautiful, what a beautiful witness they gave and how so many of them were joyful. Not that they weren't at some level fearful or anxious, you know, if we know we're heading off to be thrown to the wild beasts or to be burned um, or to be beheaded or to suffer some other kind of horrible death, to no, nevertheless see the peace and tranquility and joy that animated so many of these great martyrs because you know, their life was in proper order and they were dying with the conviction of knowing that they were not surrendering that order. They were not allowing chaos to be a disintegrating force in their life. So they were able to live that unity of life, that simplicity of life, even to the very end. And whatever kind of human anxiety marked those moments for them, and we don't want to imagine that it was easy for the martyrs to do what they did. It, it required, uh, certainly God gave them the grace, but it certainly required a lot of fortitude on their part that even knowing what they were facing, you know, they were willing to undergo it in order to retain that integrity that comes from faith rather than to give it all up and to be reduced you know, to disunity and chaos and, and, and uh, kind of personal destruction. So cheerfulness, serenity, peace, they all flow from our, our life being in proper order and our life being um, enjoying that integrity that comes from God being the unifying principle 
and the unifying reality of our life. So when St. Paul says in letters to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, he's not again speaking simply of some kind of external manifestation of joy. He doesn't expect us to be jumping up and down and dancing around the block. If that's the way we show it, God bless you, more power to you. But he wants us to have that interior joy that comes from, uh, that is, the, again, the overflowing abundance of trust in God and love of God. And, and it's not just a question of the physiological happiness that's comparable uh, to that of a healthy animal. You know, I, I have a, a friend who's a priest who has a dog. He's a great dog. And he's, the dog is funny. Now, the dog is really not funny because animals aren't funny because animals are not rational. I know it's hard to believe, but animals are irrational beasts. But the dog, to the human mind, appears funny because he does goofy things. And he, you know, he gets so excited to run after a ball. Or if you tell him to go get the cat, it's like you know, you've thrown him in, in an ocean of chocolate and he's free to eat as much as he wants. Of course, dogs can't eat chocolate. But, um, and even though there's no cat to chase, if he hears the, the priest say, go get the cat, he just, he realizes this is a time I can have fun and run around and pretend to be a, a hunting dog when I'm just, you know, a pet in some house somewhere. But, and, you know, and we can say, well, you know, that's, it's a funny dog or he's a happy dog, but he's not any of those things. He's just a dog that has a certain level of physiological contentment because he's well treated by his master. We're not looking, we're not interested in that kind of contentment. We're interested in something deeper. Now, if we have that, that's good, that's fine, but, but that's just at the kind of the animal level. Um, the joy to which St. Paul tells us that we are invited comes from and is the fruit of a prayerful union with God. <coughs> and it comes from putting the three theological virtues into practice. He will go on to say in the letter to the Thessalonians chapter 1, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances. And I think probably the proper order of those is just completely reversed. We begin by giving thanks, and that thankfulness leads us to prayer, and that prayer and thankfulness together result in rejoicing. So if we find that it's difficult for us to rejoice, or difficult for us to be cheerful, or we don't experience peace or serenity, maybe the first thing we should do is to ask ourselves, am I giving thanks? We had an occasion to, uh, not too long ago, just earlier in this retreat, to ponder a little bit the importance of thankfulness and gratitude. Am I giving thanks? Do I look around the landscape of my life and do I really see the things for which I should be grateful? Do I thank other people? Do I thank God? And does that thankfulness lead me to be more humble because I recognize that, that I don't deserve the good things that God has sent to me and that others have given to me and that despite my undeservedness that God still gives them which is really the remarkable thing. Um, and does my thankfulness lead me to prayer? Does it lead me to a supernatural outlook? 
Does it lead me to praise God and to thank God and to petition God for more and to uh, and make acts of atonement in my prayer and reparation for my sins and the sins of others? And then from that will come rejoicing and peace. And you know, when we think about it, we can see very clearly that authentic cheerfulness is completely compatible with suffering because it's the true proving ground of love. But it's, com- it's compatible with suffering. We can have suffering in our life, whether it's physical suffering, some illness, you know, just the burden of old age sometimes, um, or of having some other kind of affliction, of physical or emotional or psychological. Um, we can have suffering because of our anguish when we learn about things that are taking place in the world, when we see hardships in the church, when we see other people treated badly, um, that can bring suffering to the person, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily lose their peace or lose their cheerfulness. It's a sign of empathy that a person can feel the suffering of another, and that's a great Christian quality uh, to have empathy for others, but that does not necessarily rob a person of their cheerfulness. I think even in the midst of his suffering, the Lord was serene. He was at peace. And even in the midst of her participation in that suffering and in her own suffering, at the foot of the cross, the Blessed Mother was at peace. Now that's, I, I think that's one of the reasons uh, that the great um, sculpture of the Pietà in St. Peter's by Michelangelo made such an impression, not just because of just the, you know, the kind of remarkable uh, witness it is of the great artistry of the man who sculpted it out of a single piece of stone. It shows, you know, it's one of the most remarkable works of art in human history. But that, you know, the face of the Blessed Mother shows a serenity and a peace, despite the fact that the body of her dead son is in her lap. But she's not wailing in anguish. She's not wailing in hopelessness. She's not distraught or despairing. That doesn't mean she wasn't suffering. She was suffering more than any mother could ever suffer in those circumstances. And even though she had faith that her son would rise again in three days, that didn't take away the suffering and the pain of that moment. You ever wonder why Mary didn't go to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning? The holy women went, you know, Mary Magdalene, and the, and the apostles went. Mary never went to the tomb because she was the only one who believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Why would she go to the tomb on, on Sunday morning? She knew he wouldn't be there. Why bother? And, of course, there's an ancient tradition that the Lord appeared to her first. It's not recorded in Scripture, but it's the logical thing that we would expect of him, that he would go to see his mother first at you know, the instant of the resurrection. So even though she had faith that, that the Paschal mystery would be complete in the resurrection of her son, she was, I mean, her heart was broken, obviously, but she didn't lose her peace, and she didn't lose her serenity. And when, we, when we suffer the death of someone in our families, even under really tragic circumstances, it's heartbreaking. And that doesn't mean we're not sad. It doesn't mean there's not some level of anguish there, right? Or just interior suffering. But it doesn't, it doesn't cause us to lose our faith. It doesn't cause us... We might question God. We might ask him, 
you know, give us a few details. So fill in some, fill in some blanks here, please. The, but, but it, you know, it doesn't cause our faith to dissolve or to disappear because we know that death is a part of life, even untimely deaths. I mean, it's a part of life. It's part of living in a fallen world. And we know that we live for something more. And our life is rooted in, some, rooted in something more durable. And when we keep that in mind, then no matter what happens in our life, nothing will be able to rob us of peace and of serenity. So neither of these kind of contradictions that come from outside, nor our personal shortcomings, should be able to uproot our joy. A joy that is really the interior conviction that God loves us, that he, that he uh, accompanies us in all the circumstances of our life, and he's never forgetful of us. One of the keys, I think, to living this joyful or cheerful disposition is to have a very clear idea that we are children of God. Recall the, the anecdote from our last conference. Remember who you are. Remember why, why you're here. So divine filiation, being aware that we are children of God, that's what that phrase means. It comes from Latin filius, meaning child or son. Filia is daughter, so divine filiation being aware that we are a son or daughter of God. And it's not just a question of being a son or daughter of God, because we are by virtue of our baptism, but to become aware of it and to live with um, confidence that God our Father will never fail us, that he will never abandon us. Human fathers sometimes fail. Sometimes human fathers abandon their children. They do not live up to the ideal to which they are called. But our divine Father will never abandon us. And he will never leave us, you know, to the wolves. And while he will not necessarily protect us from all suffering, because, again, that's part of the mystery of our living in this world that is tainted by sin, uh, he will always give us the strength and the grace that we need to endure in any moment, not just to endure, but um, so that every moment can be sanctified in our life. You know, and if we have this spirit of divine filiation, I think we'll see that, that the more we struggle interiorly, the more that we struggle interiorly to live in harmony with that, the greater fruit that it will bear. A lot of people today use that phrase, I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that. Uh, and I think that's, that's a, a good way to speak about the interior life because there's a lot of struggle going on. And I think it's good to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to be struggling? Because I think some people will say they're struggling with one thing or another, especially if they're going to confession or spiritual direction, they tell the priest, you know, Father, I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that. Well, maybe they're, not really, maybe they're not struggling at all. Maybe they're just being tempted and they're getting beaten down. 
because of some vice that they have or because of some bad influence in their life or because of mistakes they made or catching up with them, whatever it may be, or external circumstances weighing them down, and they say, you know, I'm struggling with this, Father. I'm struggling with that. Well, maybe they're not struggling. Maybe they just think it's a struggle because they're having a hard time. Having a hard time is not struggling. Struggle involves two things. It involves having a strategy. It involves using weapons. Imagine a soldier going into battle. He needs a strategy. And he, need we- he needs weapons. If a soldier goes unarmed into battle, he's not coming out. If he goes into battle well-armed but without a strategy, his odds are p- for survival are pretty low. History is replete with examples of of small armies defeating larger hosts of enemies because they had a superior strategy. And they often had superior weapons, or at least they used them better because their strategy was more refined. Um, During World War I, uh, the Russian army lost millions and millions of men in battle because they had terrible strategy. They had terrible strategic planning and they were not able to produce the weapons uh, that their soldiers needed in order to engage the enemy. And they were wiped out by the millions because their foes had a strategy and had weapons and had the armaments that were necessary to, to, to win these battles. Well, in the spiritual battle too, we need a strategy and we need weapons. And so if, if we're having a spiritual struggle, if, if we find we're not cheerful, or we're not serene, or we're not peaceful, and there are things that are, you know, obstacles that we have to break through, well, we need a strategy. What is our strategy? It's going to be a little bit different for every person because our circumstances are all different, but it's going to have the same general outline. Our strategy begins with the Ten Commandments, continues with the Beatitudes, we live the commandments, means avoiding sin. That's a pretty good strategy. We live the Beatitudes, which are really a list of virtues that we try to acquire. That's a pretty good strategy. And then we can, we can translate that into very concrete acts of prayer, sacramental life, acts of faith, hope, and charity. That's our strategy, together with avoiding things that we know are sinful. You know, if, for example, a person let's say, um, has uh, an addiction to Rice, rice Krispies. I mean, who could have an addiction to Rice Krispies, really? They're mostly air. You know, there's nothing there, really. So, but let's just say, for argument's sake, someone has an addiction to Rice Krispies, and they're eating so many Rice Krispies, it's destroying their health because they're having too many carbs too long, all day long, together, and they're pouring cream over them rather than skim milk, you know, or I don't know and using too much sugar, all the things that would come with, the, with the cereal. Well, they, they know that they, when they go shopping, they can't go down the cereal aisle. They need to confine themselves to the outer ring of the supermarket where, where the fresh fruits and vegetables and meats and everything else is and leave all the carbs in the middle and never go into that kind of uh, dark pit of, of carbohydrate hell there in the middle of the... Grocery store, all the good stuff's around the edge. All the good stuff is around the edge. And so, 
you know, they said, well, you know, I'm just going to go down the cereal aisle and just take a look at those Rice Krispie boxes. I'm not going to buy any. I'm just going to look at them. And maybe I'll go by the marshmallow aisles and think about maybe if I melted some marshmallows and mixed it with the Rice Krispies, I can make those little cookie things. But I'm not going to buy any. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm not going to buy any. Well, you know, pretty soon they're looking at all the boxes and then they're saying, well, I'm just going to hold the box. I'm going to smell the box. Pretty soon the box is in the cart and the cart is at the checkout and the bags are in the car and they're home and they're, they're ODing on Rice Krispies. They had a bad strategy. They said, I'm going to play with this temptation and get as close as I can without sinning and by the time they, you know, that's a very bad strategy because anytime anyone goes down that road, they always cross the line. Almost always cross the line. And they fall. Well, if I know that something is sinful, and you know something is sinful, we stay as far away from it as we can. We don't say, well, how, can I cl- how close can I get to the line without going over? You know, that's like asking the priest, Father, how late can I be to Mass and still have it count? <laughs> that shows the totally wrong attitude. Totally wrong attitude, as if the Mass is just a project that we have to get out of the way. Um, and I haven't had someone ask that question in many years, but uh, I think the last time someone did, I said, well, you know, uh, we have to be there uh, 30 minutes before and stay 20 minutes after. What? Okay. I didn't say that. But uh, I, I, I kind of wanted to. Um, but we have to have strategy. So strategy is to do good, avoid evil, right? stay away from, from occasions of sin. Um, and then our, what are our weapons? Our weapons are the sacraments, prayer, sacrifice. Sacrifice that leads to self-control or self-mastery. And we have to use those things in a deliberative way. I mean, one of the great things about Lent is it gives us the opportunity to focus a little bit more on this notion of self-mastery, of denying ourselves some little thing so that that thing doesn't dominate us and our desire for it doesn't dominate us. So we give up something that's not sinful. Or we, we embark on trying to acquire a virtue or a practice that's, you know, that's not sinful, that's virtuous, that can take the place of something that's vicious, uh, so that we can cultivate virtue, so that once Lent is over, we may go back to partaking of that thing which we gave up. But we have, in the meantime, in those 40 days, acquired a little bit more self-mastery, so that it doesn't dominate us. Yeah. And... Ideally, that should be the model for our whole life. Not that every day has to be lived as though it's Lent, but that we never want to let up on this notion that we have to have a strategy, a spiritual strategy, and spiritual weapons in order to help us to be moving forward. Because ultimately, that's the source of Christian joy and Christian peace, which is victory. Victory leads, spiritual victories lead to spiritual joy and spiritual peace. And it's not as though we have to strive for the huge victories all the time, but just have some little victories. 
You know, if, we, if a person embarked on a pretty ambitious program of prayer or sacrifice during Lent, and, the, and, and they get through a day and they say, you know, and they wake up the next morning and say, boy, I did really well yesterday. I had a little victory. How great. I'll give you something to try for Lent, to try for any time. I think this is a great sacrifice anybody can make. I think it's hard to do. Get up on time without hitting the snooze button. So as soon as the alarm goes off, and some people have an internal alarm, you know, which is great. As soon as the alarm goes off, get out of bed. Don't hit the snooze button. Don't linger. Almost nobody can do that. But, you know, I look upon that. That's the first battle of the day. And if we can win that first battle, the other battles will be a little easier. But if we're defeated at that first moment of the day, it's a little bit harder to get on our feet and get rolling. You know, we know in our own experience, if at the beginning of the day in the morning, if we have a, a kind of routine of prayer that we're committed, that we're committed to, if we, if we get, off on a good, uh, get off to a good start on our prayer routine in the morning, it usually makes the rest of the day go better. But if we get behind and we put it off and we spend all of our time in the morning before we get dressed uh, looking at news stories on the phone, and instead of saying a morning offering or, or having some time to pray, um, even as we're, as we're getting ready for the day, well, then our day doesn't start off as well as it could. Because, again, we're not living that order, that interior order uh, that comes from our awareness of being uh, a child of God. I mean, think of the example of the rich young man in the gospel in uh, Mark chapter 10. He comes before the Lord, obviously a very virtuous person. He says he's kept all the commandments. And if he were lying or he were self-deceived, Jesus would call him a hypocrite. He had no qualms about calling people hypocrites. And so, But here's this young man obviously a prosperous fellow, and obviously virtuous. He said he's kept all the commandments. The Lord takes him at his word. He said, you, you know, there's only one thing you need to do. Okay, that's a good start. You, you, need, to, you need to give up what you have and, and give to the poor and follow me. We can almost see this guy's face and wanting to ask the question, is there a plan B? You know, can't... You know, can I do something else? And, you know, he, the Lord might have asked different things of different people. But that's what he asked of this person. Because that's, that was the obstacle in this young man's life. To a greater love for God. Uh, what he had. And the, the disordinate attention that he gave to material things. Jesus doesn't ask everyone who's rich to give up everything. Although he does ask that we order everything in our life no matter what we have, order to his glory and to his purpose. Uh, but, but we're told that he went away sad. He went away sad, we're told, because his possessions were many, but he really went away sad because he'd said no. Jesus had asked him to do something. He said, no, don't want to do it. No, I'd rather, I'd rather have this little comfort than to live with some uncertainty. Because to give up his wealth would have been, meant, humanly speaking, going down a road that was for him uncertain. And of course, the Lord would have been his certainty, and the Lord would have been his steady companion. He didn't know that, but he was never going to discover it either, because he was unwilling to take that step. So he went away sad. 
The lesson for us is clear. If we want to live with cheerfulness and joy, then we say yes. We say yes to God. If we say no to God, then we're not going to have joy in our life. And every time we sin, we're saying no to God. It may be a little bit of, maybe a little no, it may be a big no. But we're saying no. Or we're saying later. I'll do it later, which is like saying no. Um, so sin always messes everything up. Sin never makes anything better. Sin never clarifies anything. Sin never uh, helps us to grow in happiness. It doesn't do any of those things. It makes a lot of promises. You know, you talk about empty promises. There you have it. It's like someone trying to sell you an, an annuity, you know. <laughs> it promises a lot, but it doesn't deliver very much. Uh, if you sell annuities, we'll have to talk afterwards, you know. Um, sin makes lots of promises. It doesn't deliver on any of them. So our spiritual strategy is always to use what the Lord has given us so that we can live virtually rather than virtuously rather than sinfully because we never want to be like this rich young man we want to instead always say yes to the lord i think you know a great morning offering to make is to say at the beginning of the day lord i say yes to whatever you send me today i say yes in advance whatever it may be help me say yes in the moment but i'm beginning my day by saying yes in advance to anything that you send me or that you allow me to experience this day so that it can be a path that leads me to you. That's a pretty daring thing to say, I think. But I think it can also bear fruit. Well, let's pray about that today, this afternoon, and ask the Lord to help us you know, to, to strive for that cheerfulness that is the fruit of a deep awareness of our being children of God um, who are striving to lay aside any encumbrance that would hold us back so that we can be completely at Christ's disposal because that's the only true path to peace and joy on this earth and in the life to come.